Jesus, we want this place to be all about you. Not just our worship, but so transform us that in every area of our lives, oh Lord, we desire that it be about you. May our lives put the spotlight on you. Again, so change us that our thoughts are about you. May we be enthralled with you, totally in love with you. And we thank you for this time to start our week off properly. We thank you for your presence here this morning. Now grant us, we ask, that spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of your Son as we open our Bibles this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like I said, we talked about beginnings. We're going to talk about endings this morning. We started this series. I have no idea. Hopefully it won't take 30 sermons like the beginnings did. Um, can anyone tell me who uh, Pastor uh, Charles Taze Russell was? Anybody? He was the founder of, of a religion that eventually became the modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. And now, initially, uh, Pastor Russell dismissed attempts to... Pre- to give a, a prophetic prediction of Christ's return, but that changed rapidly after speaking with an Adventist by the name of, and an author, Nelson Barber. <laughs> and by 1876, uh, Pastor Russell became convinced that Christ would return in 1878. And so he sold all his business interests in preparation for the second coming. Now the failure of that prediction you, as you might expect, led to a, a split with Barber. Uh, Pastor Russell would later claim that Christ had returned spiritually in 1874 and that the end of the world would occur in 1914. Well, he was wrong. You can recognize this book. I actually do. I'm going to date myself again. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I remember seeing that in Christian bookstores in 1988. Anyone remember seeing this? You did? You did? Okay. Yep, it's by Edgar C. Wisenhunt. He was a former NASA engineer and a Bible student who predicted, obviously, that the rapture would occur in 1988, sometime between September 11th and September 13th. So see how specific he is? You can actually see it right here. See that? Um, he published two books, this just blows me away, about this, The 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, and another book, On Borrowed Time. Now, eventually, 300,000 copies, and where he got the money to, to do this, I don't know, of 88 Reasons were mailed free of charge to ministers across America. But here's what is really, really shocking. In fact, I don't even know if the word shocking is the right word. Appalling, whatever word is a synonym for shocking or appalling, just mind-blowing, is the fact that 4.5 million copies were sold in bookstores of the 88 Reasons 
why the rapture will be in 1988 and elsewhere. Now, Wisden Hunt was quoted as saying, now watch this, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I said to every preacher in town. Now, humanity has always had an interest in the end times. And of course, the theological term which makes me sound smarter than I am is, is of course, what? Eschatology. You guys know that, okay? Now, Matthew 24 and 25 is a sermon given by our Lord to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. The theme of this great sermon is the second coming of Jesus Christ in the end of the present age, the establishment of his kingdom. But the whole sermon is triggered by the question of the disciples, and it's this one right here. Okay? I figured we start at the beginnings, but where do we start when I start a series on the beginnings? Well, that's easy. Genesis 1-1. Where do I start at the end? Okay? So let's start about, let's talk about the, the signs of the times. Now, Jesus came out from the temple. He's just confronted the religious leaders and, and just put them to shame. Uh, he's going away uh, when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. I don't have time to go into just how massive Herod's temple was. Okay? I mean, it was just one of the, the few sites that you wanted to see. Historians, Josephus and others talked about it. If you haven't seen the, any real building in architecture, it would be Herod's temple. You need to see that. And he was a Gentile who built that, that temple so the Jews could worship. And that, trust me, stuck in the craw of the Jews. They didn't like that. Okay? And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. This is an amazing statement because where is this temple at the time? It's up on a mountain that they build. And there's all these, like 45 feet by 12 feet long, just, or huge stones. That's how they moved back then with their technology. And they had these foundation stones and they built this up on this mountain. We had this like fortress, this wall around it. And he's saying to them, and it was such a, a wonder, you know, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And so they're just blown away. So he, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, uh, or the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the answer the Lord gives uh, is the longest answer to if you or not, the longest answer to any question recorded in the New Testament. And its insights are absolutely essential for any understanding of the future. And this is where we'll begin our study, since we've already looked at what the Bible says about the beginnings. Let's take a look at what it says about the end. Now, before I do that, you don't need to turn to Matthew yet. I need to lay down some groundwork, okay? And so... If you feel like this is too much information, deal with it. I can send this out to you as I always do, all right? Um, but I got to lay some basic groundwork that will provide us for some insight and enhance our understanding. So what I want you to do is to turn here, okay? I'll give you time to get there, okay? In fact, whoever is there first that doesn't have a phone, raise your hand, like an actual Bible. You're the winner. I have a prize for you. Okay, you're there... In in your Bible, okay. 
Daniel chapter 9. Okay? What I'm going to do is actually take you to verse, starting in verse 20. And there's a reason why we're, we're doing this. And so, it says, Now while I was speaking and praying, this is Daniel uh, writing this, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness, about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Let me just stop right there before you go any further. This is so important that the Lord sends Gabriel to explain this vision to Daniel, okay? And you'll understand why in a, in a minute. Um, and he tells him to take heed. And so this is something that we need to take seriously as well. Verse 24, he says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's pretty easy to understand. I don't think I need to go any further in that. You guys should understand it, right? Even reading it again makes me get confused, right? So, let's take a little bit of this and break this down, all right? You might recognize this. This is obviously Daniel. And of course, there's a 70-year Jewish captivity. Now, why are the Jews in a 70-year judgment? Because they disobeyed the Lord, right? And God said, if you disobey me, this is what's going to happen. You'll be ruled by other nations. During the 70-year Jewish captivity, by who? Babylonians. Daniel is born. We have the story of Daniel. And what happens to him? He's taken captive, taken to, and he ends up serving with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? With, in the, serving which king? Nebuchadnezzar. Exactly. Okay, so he is here during this time. This is when this all happens, and this is the time of Daniel, Okay. <laughs> Now, in a previous dream, we're not going to really go into much, God reveals to Daniel 500 years of the future. Okay? In a vision of a, of a man and an ugly beast, two separate visions. Um, and the gold, which was represented, I think, of the head, is the Babylonian Empire. It's followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, and it's going to continue. What followed the Medo-Persian Empire? 
the Greek Empire, which is followed by the Roman Empire. Okay? All that was laid out, and so we know the accuracy of these visions given to Daniel. This is a separate thing that we're reading here. But this is Daniel, okay? And there are six events, the text says, that will happen, okay? Finish transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. So another way to understand Daniel 9, 24, and 27 is this. If there's anything you want to write down, it would probably be this, but that it's, verse 24 is a summary of the prophecy. Verse 25 is the first 69 weeks of Daniel. Verse 26 is the time we are in now. And verse 27 is the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So this is great. We have this. This we understand. This we have to predict, guess, based upon the Bible and so on. All right? Now, the question that will unlock Daniel 9, 24, and 27 is this. Do the sevens refer to days, weeks, months, or years? Okay? How many of you are familiar with this prophecy, by the way? I know I've gone over it before. Okay? And now the 77s, obviously 70 times 7 is what? 490. So if you take the six things right here, these six things of Daniel 9, are not completed in 490 days, then we know it's the seven doesn't refer to seven days. How about seven weeks? Are they completed in seven weeks? You get the whole idea. If it's not completed in days, weeks, or months, it is logical to assume that sevens refers to sevens of years. Okay? Sevens of years. And this is an amazing prophetic word from God revealed to Daniel. This fulfilled prophecy, by the way, is one of many that proves the authenticity and the divinely inspired nature of the Bible. And we understand this prophecy in its fully completed state. Why? Because we can look back and interpret, right? And we interpret it through what? Past historical events, exactly. Past historical events. Daniel and his contemporaries, do you think they understood it at the time? No, they did not. They didn't have this luxury. See, now we are in the place of Daniel and the prophets, okay? So what we see here is this. If it's, this is the explanation because we can look back in history. Again, if you go back here, catch us right here, Medo-Persian Empire. Now we're going to go up here. You can see it's right here, the Medo-Persian Empire. The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given by King Artaxerxes. Where is that in the Bible, by the way? Nehemiah, a little short guy, right? How tall is he? Nehemiah, there you go. All right, a little short guy. What was he doing? He was serving the king, Artaxerxes, and he looked despondent and despaired, and he didn't normally look that way. And the king said, what's wrong? And he prayed, and he said, here's what's going on. My city's not being rebuilt, and it's in ruins, and so on and so forth. So he gets this approval to what? Rebuild it. So the de- 
God and his sovereignty. Remember that stuff in his providence? Now we know from here, it's going to be 69 weeks. So we had 49 years plus 434 gets this. And if you take 483 years from this time, it takes us all the way to here. Okay? Until what? Messiah the Prince comes. And so now we know that that's referring to Jesus coming. And so what happened during that time as well, the Old Testament canon was completed and so on. There was 400 years of silence and so on. We went from the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greek Empire and the beginning of the Roman Empire. And this is the first coming of Jesus. And we know that he came to die. All right? So this is a very, very specific prophecy that was fulfilled. And it tells us, you know, again, the Bible is unique. It is a divinely inspired book from God. Okay? So I just wanted you to see that. Now, this is where... And we know this stuff, and we can rejoice in it because, again, we look at past history. This is where we are now. And now we are in the place of Daniel when he was alive. We're in the place of the disciples when they were alive with Jesus because, obviously, this is our time, a period of grace or the time of what some call consummation until the end, okay? The time of the Gentiles. This is where we are. We don't know this stuff here. We know some, but we don't know it all. Okay? And you'll understand a little bit more as I go through this. Because there's a reason why I'm starting off this way. Now, any questions so far? What do we do know? Well, what do we think we know? Well, you've been taught this... When it comes to all this stuff here, a great tribulation, okay, <laughs> that there's a millennial reign, if you believe that, um, and that this, some would say, is Daniel's 70th week, the one last seven-year period, based upon this verse, and there's some that say that, you know, based upon Daniel and so on other verses, that this prince or antichrist will make a covenant, there's going to be the abomination that causes desolation, which is the worship of himself, so on, that Jesus will come again, at the Battle of Armageddon, and usher in a thousand-year reign, again, if you believe that. Now, what we believe, what we've been taught, is this. There are various rapture views, okay? And the first one is what's called a pre-tribulation rapture. This is before Daniel's 70th week, so it happens where? This is Daniel's 70th week, where would the rapture happen? Right there. Okay? What does the word rapture mean? Taken up. It's as similar as the second coming. The word rapture, harpes, I think it is, and the second coming or coming is the word parousia. Some see them as separate. Some see them as interchanged. If you're going to believe that this happens here, that the rapture happens here, you see a difference between the word rapture and the word coming. Okay? And so this is what you're taking up here. This is what we call, again, Pre-tribulation rapture. It's before Daniel's 70th week. This was popularized in 1830 by John Nelson Darby, a Plymouth Brethren dispensational uh, minister. Okay? This is what is popular today. Now, one of the things that, as I told you before when I was being interviewed for this position, is I spent a year teaching the college students this stuff, this right here. We wanted to know a little bit about eschatology, so we studied it. And I got all the books by you know, Timothy LaHaye and 
Timothy Ice and others and so on. I remember reading John Walvoord's Armageddon Oil in the Middle East Crisis. We'll never hear that, read that book. This position was popularized by a book that you hopefully have heard of by Hal Lindsey called what? The Late Great Planet Earth. Okay, The dispensational position of, of eschatology was popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible and by Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay, Lewis Berry Schaefer and that whole group. Okay, And it's popular because you recognize the name, I think it's Tim LaHaye, the Left Behind series, okay, with Kirk Cameron and so on. And that's, it's, it's good news, right? I mean, who wants to go through all the bad stuff of the tribulation, right? And it's a very popular view, and they make a distinction, these dispensational uh, theologians, between, um, they take a very little interpretation of Scripture and a distinction between the second coming of Jesus Christ and a rapture, okay? This is very, very popular, right? One of the nice things about what they have done is they've brought eschatology back into the Christian mind, okay? And again, if some guy can write 88 reasons why rapture will occur in 1988 and sell 4.5 million copies, I mean, there's obviously there's a reason for that, right? Now, there's the mid-trip position, which obviously would happen right here. Now, before I can go further, there's a problem with this right here, and no one wants to seem to really acknowledge it, but if this is where it happens, right here, then I can predict when Jesus Christ will come again, because it's going to happen when? Seven years after that. But what does the scripture say? Nobody knows. Not even the son knows. Now, if I'm here, and I'm a mid-trip, and again, this was the middle of Daniel's 70th week in it you know, 1940s by Gleason Archer. And by the way, you know why this became popular? What was going on in the 40s? Wars and rumors of wars, a world war. What's one of the things that will happen in signs of the end times? The wars and rumors of wars. It's a mid-trip position. But again, if you look at this right here, again, if you're going to be cups here, then I know he's coming back three and a half years later. All right? Now, there's the, this position, which is the, the post-trip position. It's the end of Daniel's 70th week is when you're taken up. This has been the historic position of the church. Again, this would be right here. So in other words, the, the rapture and the second coming, those two words are the same event. We will come up with him, meet him in the air, come down with him, and there'll be the battle of Armageddon and, and then the thousand-year reign. Okay, That's the historic position of the church. All right? And I threw this in there as a, a little bit of a joke here. The pan trip, that things will pan out in the end. Because it's just so confusing how this is all going to work out. Okay? All right? Now, that being said, let's talk about this. This is what is called the millennial reign of kingdom. The thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's in Revelation 20, I believe it is. So he comes again. There's the battle of Armageddon. He defeats Satan, and then there's a thousand-year reign, okay? Then Revelation talks about Satan is loose near the end, then he's eventually destroyed forever, and then we go into the eternal state. Then there's the great white throne judgments, the new heaven, the new earth, and you can see all of that, okay? That's basic to what it is, but what you see here is now there are different views on the millennial view. So we can't agree on anything, folks. That's kind of my point, right? We can't agree on anything. So here we have... There's the premillennial view, okay, and that is that there's the church age followed by Christ's second coming, 
then the millennium, then the eternal state. So the church age, followed by Christ's second coming, the millennium, then the second, then the eternal state. That's the premillennial view. Again, that we're in this time now. He's going to come again. There'll be a thousand-year reign and then the eternal state. This has been the historic position of the church through the fourth century. Okay? And the reason why, in a minute, I'll explain it to you. It takes a literal normative method of interpreting the Scripture. Okay? And this is where I would fall on this. But I hold it very loosely. Then there's this. There's the amillennial view. And this is a position of a lot of people in this church because this is a Reformed church, and this is what the, one of the founding pastors taught a lot of, and that's the church age, followed by Christ's second coming, then the eternal state. There is no thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Okay? And this is insurmountable, in my opinion. You have to take all the chapter of the Bible and say it's all symbolic. And they cannot answer that question. You cannot. I asked them, how can you get to the point where you say Revelation, like in chapter 20, it's just completely symbolic. How do you suspend certain ways of interpreting the Bible, but then you apply it to this text only? They can't answer that question. Okay, we don't know. All right? But that's what they say. And, and again, this is, again, the church age followed by Christ's second coming in the eternal state. This was popularized by Augustine. It was not the historic position of the church. Okay? Now, he, what he did so well is that the kingdom, as we understand the kingdom of, of heaven, it reigns in the hearts of men now. And we see it when a life is changed or transformed. Okay? But it has the kingdom come in all its fullness. And the answer is quite honestly and obviously what? No, we long for that when it will come again in its fullness, okay? He used an allegorical method of interpretation, which is sometimes absolutely laughable with some of the things that he interpreted allegorically, okay? But it was popularized by Augustine, okay? Then you have the post-millennial view. You have the church age, the, and they usher in the millennium. In other words, things are going to get better by the work of the church. Now, what does 2,000 years of history tell us about the church and making and changing the culture? It ain't happening, right? That's followed by Christ's second coming and then the eternal state. It's popularized by Daniel Whitby. Obviously, this is a, a fairly new 17th century Unitarian ministry that man, through the effect of the gospel, will usher in the millennium. Now, if I were to tell you if I were to take a, a, my daughter, for example, Lydia, and she's going to college, she would go to Dallas Theological Seminary. After four years, she would come out and she would tell you through the patient, careful study of Scripture that here, that Christ is going to come here, that we'll be taken up here, Christ will come with him here, and during his seven years, we will have what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will come back with him, and we will usher in this thousand-year reign and rule with him. Then he's going to let Satan loose. He's going to be defeated, and then all of this will happen in the eternal state. And if you would ask Lydia, how did you arrive at that position? She would say it's a plain teaching of Scripture. Okay? And a lot of great, sound theological guys 
come from Dallas Theological Seminary. I've benefited from them. You have too. If she went to Westminster uh, Seminary in Philadelphia, Lydia would say that this event right here, his second coming, that there is no rapture. We're going to come with him here. This does not exist. We go right into this right here. In other words, an amillennialist position. If you would ask her how she got that position, she would say, it's the plain teaching of Scripture. So we have two opposing views, and they are both claiming it's the plain teaching of Scripture. What do you think my point is about all of this? We don't know. And you hold this loosely. Okay? Dr. Bill Bright spent time studying this. I know a pastor that took a year off to study it. I've studied it. Others have studied it. It is, there are too many unknowns for us to fit the pieces of the puzzle together, which is what I felt like I had to do when I was studying dispensationalism. I cannot get around, I just find it kind of laughable that you can throw out a whole chapter based upon we think it's simply symbolic. But you don't take those same interpretive, interpretive scriptures that way and apply it to other portions of the Bible. I can't get there. Now what I do do is I live my life in light of his coming in any moment. And I focus on making disciples. All right? But that's where we are today. Now, we are not alone in trying to understand the future. And this really is kind of the whole point of this message this morning, is that the Jews of Jesus' day, they're no different. They wanted to know the future. See, they were tired of being oppressed. They had experienced the Assyrian oppression and the taking away of the ten tribes of the north. Then they went into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Um, they'd gone through the Persian rule and the Greek rule and the rule of the Roman Empire. Well, they were currently under them at that time. If you went through all those years of oppression, you'd want to be free again, right? Absolutely. And they longed to be ruled by a righteous king, the Messiah, because through him they would know the kingdom with all of its blessings promised in the Old Testament. And so no doubt they read with anticipation what Isaiah said in chapter 9. He said that there would come one and the government would what? Be upon his shoulders. Or Isaiah 11, that a branch out of the root of Jesse, who was the father of David, would reign in a prosperous time and would be anointed with the sevenfold power of the Holy Spirit. You must have read Jeremiah chapters 23 and 30 about how there would come one who would sit upon the, earth, upon the throne of his father David and rule Israel in a way that Israel would bloom like a flower in full glory under the blessing of God. And by the time you come to the life of Jesus, the Jews had a very clear understanding and a, very, uh, and a flow of end time events. Did you know that? A very educated, in their minds, eschatology. It's evident through the Old Testament scriptures, but also some writings of that time that aren't part of the canon of the Bible, aren't, aren't considered you know, inspired by God, but they're still good historical works. Okay, It's called the pseudepigrapha. They're extra-biblical writings, um, for example, that uh, they have some errors in them, but they include books like 3rd and 4th Maccabees, The Assumption of Moses, 
First and Second Enoch, the assumption of every wife that's ever lived. There was a joke there. <laughs> Fourth Ezra, and so on. Now, there's a man by the name of uh, Emil Schur. He wrote a book entitled The History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ. And it tells us what it was that Jews believed at that time. And it's really fascinating. I'm going to put these down here really quickly. He gives you the sequence of events that's going to happen with, um, here we go, the Jews and how they understood their eschatology at the time of Jesus. At Matthew 24, when he asked this question, there's going to be a time of great tribulation. They believed that before the Messiah came, there would be a time of terrible tribulation comparable to the, what we call a birth pain. As a woman has birth pain immediately before life comes out of her womb, so before the kingdom of Messiah is established, the nations will suffer some painful tribulation. In fact, even if you read in what's called the Mishnah, we read this. Arrogance increases, ambition shoots up, and the vine yields fruit, yet wine is scarce. The government turns to heresy. There is no instruction. The synagogue is devoted to lewdness. Galilee is destroyed. Gablin laid waste. The inhabitants of a distinct of a district go from city to city without finding compassion. The wisdom of the learned is hated. The godly is despised. Truth is absent. Boys insult old men. Old men stand in the presence of children. The son depreciates the father. The daughter rebels against the mother. The daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are his house fellows. And that sounds a lot like today. But trust me, we are not even near, as you'll learn in the next coming weeks, the end. Okay? The signs that we'll, as we'll interpret it, I'll explain it to you, it hasn't happened to the intensity that it should. To signal his coming soon. There's a herald. Into the tribulation would come a forerunner announcing the immediate arrival of the Messiah. And this herald will be like Elijah, a forerunner who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Again, so a great tribulation, a herald. There's going to be the coming of Messiah, the great divine king who would come and end the present age and establish the age of glory, the kingdom, and vindicate God's people. There's going to be a total destruction of the nations who oppose Messiah. Okay? A total, or a fight against Messiah, then a total destruction of the nations who oppose Messiah. God will destroy, by the way, during this fight, all those nations. Number six, there will be a renovation of Jerusalem, a purification of the city. So it will be the Jerusalem of the great kingdom, millennium and the great eternal glory of the king. The dispersed Jews of the world will be regathered back into the city of Jerusalem. In fact, to this day, the Jewish daily prayer says this in part, lift up a banner to gather our dispersed and assemble us from the four ends of the earth. They pray that even to this day. And that Palestine will become the center of the world. That's what they believe. This may give you some understanding as to why Palestine is always a place right now at war and in conflict. Because certainly this world, which is under the control of the evil one, does not want that to happen. With me so far? You awake? Okay. Now with that said, 
Let's try to follow the thinking, because this is how they, again, this is how they thought. Great tribulation, their herald, the coming of Messiah, a fight against the Messiah, total destruction of the nations who oppose him, renovating Jerusalem, dispersed Jews coming back, and Palestine being the center of the world. The time of Jesus, the disciples, the Jews, endured tribulation for a long time, okay, under the Persians. So that is this right here. They're in that, they think. Okay? They've been under the Persians, been under the Greeks, and now the Romans. They could easily remember back not long before when their people had suffered during the Maccabean period. Okay? The terrible desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes. You remember that? Recognize that name? Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek general that went into the temple and desecrated it by putting pig's blood all over the temple and demanded that he himself be worshipped. That sounds like the abomination that causes desolation, right? They knew that. They remembered that. That led to the Maccabean revolt, okay? And uh, uh, they needed to, they, they, they defeated him. They went and they cleansed the temple, but they had to have a candle burning for all those days. They didn't have many candles. But yet, miraculously, the candle burned for eight days. That's why you have the candles. On the, is it the menorah? Is that what it is? That's the story behind that. Next, you have a man that showed up during the time of the Jews at that time of Jesus, and that was who? John the Baptist, right? A herald. So what do you think they think now? Okay, now we have the John the Baptist coming. He's like who? Elijah. Then he's followed by who? Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus heals people. He raises the dead miraculously feeds the multitudes, and by himself, by the way, he practically banishes disease from Palestine during the duration of his ministry. He comes riding in Jerusalem at the Passover, and what do they do? They throw the palm branches and garments in front of him, and they say to themselves, this is the Messiah. And so what's going to happen next in their understanding of the, of the eschatology when he comes? A total destruction of the nations who oppose the Messiah. They're waiting for the nations of the earth to gather against him, and then he's going to destroy them. And the Romans are going to be the first ones to taste his wrath, and then the Holocaust of all the nations will quickly follow and intensify as all the nations are defeated. And once he's done that, he's going to purify Jerusalem. He'll throw out all the hypocrites and all the false religion and all the false worship. And then we're going to see that glorious final temple where the true worship is going to go on. Then he's going to gather all the Jews from all over the world and establish an eternal kingdom. This is what the disciples, again, all these things right here, this is what the disciples were thinking as we approach Matthew chapter 24. They see it all happening when he comes the first time. See, they don't understand what we understand, because again, we can look back, is that he came once, and now you have to wait before he comes again. And it wasn't just the disciples and first century Jews. The Old Testament prophets didn't understand this as well. They just saw Christ coming and the whole thing happening at once. That's why the New Testament calls the church a mystery. 
It was hidden and revealed in the time of God's planning. So, when Jesus says this in reference to the temple in Jerusalem, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But when he says, your house is being left to you desolate, which one of these things do you think that they think is happening, if you're a Jew at this time? Well, it's none of these. It's going to be what? The renovation of Jerusalem. That's how they're thinking. Uh, They're interpreting what he is saying. They're thinking, we've been through tribulation, Elijah's come, the Messiah is here, the next event is the destruction of the opposing nations, and then the renovation or purification of Jerusalem, then the gathering for the kingdom. So when they hear him say, I'm going to renovate your house, and then I'm going to come, they really think he's right on schedule, according to their understanding of the end times. And were they wrong? Which is why what I read to you of what we think happens in the future is probably, or mostly, wrong. There are truths to it, but we simply can't really know. We're going to look at what we can know, but that was what turned me off with the dispensationalist position. I had to fit so many pieces of the puzzle together. The whole Bible study realized that I don't, we have question marks about this now. Okay? But this thinking of eschatology, it dominated the thinking of the Jews at the time of Jesus. How do I know that? Well, before this statement in Matthew 23 that I just read, we find this. This is before the event of Matthew 24 and 25. Before they asked that question, what does it say? While they're listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and what did they think? They supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Even What was he telling them, by the way, during all this time? I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. Okay, I'm going to suffer, die, be resurrected, and so on. All right? After that happens, and he's being taken up to heaven, this is what he says. When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They couldn't get past their way of thinking of eschatology, which is why you have people hardened in their positions of dispensational you know, pre-tribulation rapturism or the, the reformed amillennialist position. You get so focused on these things, you can't see reality. All right? You can't see it. And so my point is that the Jews at the time of Jesus, the disciples, they lived constantly in the anticipation that it was the time in the kingdom. It was all happening. It was coming. You see, their thinking stemmed from an understanding of, two, of one word and one phrase. The word coming in the phrase, end of the age. To a first century Jew, when they asked, what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age, we think they're referring to a second coming. That's how I've always read this verse, because that's how I understand it. Because I live in what time? A time where I wait for his second coming. Right? I can look back and see that. But they don't think that way because they are not. They don't know of a second coming. 
The prophets in the Old Testament did not present a second coming, but a one-time coming. In other words, the prophets looked ahead. They compressed all the events of the end times into a rather simple formula. There's some suffering, tribulation, the Messiah comes, set up his kingdom, defeat his enemies, all of that. There was no time between the first and second coming because this was hidden from them. This is why it's called a mystery. And to their thinking, the word, the word coming, which is the word parousia, I mean, it literally means, by the way, to be around or to be present, is best translated in what shall be, not the sign of your coming, but what shall be the sign of your full presence, of you being here. In other words, the point being, it isn't that he has to go away and come back, because the issue of the word is his actual coming, his presence. So they're saying, what are you going, when are you going to enter into the fullness of your messianic presence? Now the understanding of the phrase, end of the age, means the very end of everything. When God comes in ultimate, final, complete judgment and takes the unbelieving and sends them to hell and the believers go into his presence. So Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus answering this question and he's saying to them, and I think this is revolutionary to my understanding, and hopefully to yours as well, your understanding the future of end times is wrong. And that was the whole reason why I brought up all this stuff up here. There is a, a good chance, a better than 51% chance, that all that stuff we just read is wrong. Is wrong. So to divide over issues of eschatology makes no sense, okay? To get into these little narrow windows and not leave boxes and, and not go out of them because someone believes something different is just ludicrous. And so what he's saying to them is what you've seen is not the end of the age. The, the, the trouble you've been in, the tribulation, the hard times, why were they in those that position, because the scriptures were clear. You disobeyed my commands, and per the what covenant you signed on with me, these are the curses that come. You turn from that, I will provide for you. And he provided for them many times in the past, it's called judges, but they still sinned. They still sinned. We're still in captivity. We're still in a time of suffering and tribulation. So God says, I'll give you something even greater than a temporary deliverer, I will give you my son, the once for all deliverer. And what do they do to him? They kill him. They kill him. Exactly. And so your, your eschatology is wrong. This isn't the end of the age. Let me show you what are the signs of my second coming. So he lays this out for them, by the way, in the longest sermon, in the longest answer he gives, okay, and when he goes, after he experiences his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, again, their question is what? Are you now going to put this, let the kingdom come? Do you see how we are skewed and, and unable to see reality when we get locked in? When we think we've cornered the market and we know the answer. And since they were wrong about their eschatology, 
Do you think it's possible that we might be wrong about ours? That's how they thought, okay? We have ways that we think. And what I'm going to do, to the best of my ability, is just this, what can we know? Without getting, going symbolically or anything else, as, as best I can, what does the text say? And we'll start off with these signs and find out actually what does it says, and we'll go from there. Because one of the things that we say, and I hear it even today, boy, we're close to the end, Right? Look at these signs. There's always wars. I mean, there's wars and rumors of wars and so on. There's false Christ. And we can point to individuals that, that, that are false Christ that have appeared in the wars and so on. But we forget to interpret this section based upon two words, birth pangs. And when you have a child, all right, there's a thing called Braxton Hicks. Like contractions, but not. We are in the Braxton Hicks phase right now, I believe. Because when it does come, what's going to happen? According to the Bible, birth pain. And when birth pain comes, it all of a sudden comes what? Closer and closer and more intensely, and then, then you will know, now we're near the end. I get it that the wars and rumors of wars would have happened in the 40s. Well, why? The world was at war. To my knowledge, there's only one war going on right now. And what is that? War in Ukraine. So, is it, are we close now? No. Where are all the false Christs? Because they're going to start to appear in a great fashion because of how awful things are going to be. And you're going to want to get out of this. And so these people are going to rise up. But we're not there yet. That's a preview of next week's sermon. So you get the idea here, okay? All right? But it is important to know these things, right? And even more important than that is how you live your life now, which is what he says, which I went over three or four years ago, you better be ready. Live as if it's coming today. Amen? Amen. And so... Really, I just want you for the application point, which is really, really simple, just hold loosely to what you think you know about your eschatology, okay? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you and close our time, I thank you that you kept people awake. I am amazed that people can listen to me for 40 minutes. Lord, would you bless our day Thank you for this beautiful weather. We recognize it's coming from your gracious hand. We thank you for the age of grace we're in and that there is still time for people to believe, to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of our beloved son or your beloved son. May we take what we learned today and think about it and ponder it in our hearts and, and be drawn closer to you this week. Would you bring everyone here Wednesday night at 7, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hope you feel bad if you don't come Wednesday night at 7. Have a great day. God bless you.